Lessons one and two of the History of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. The History of London by Walter Besant. Lesson one: The Foundation of London, Part One. Quote. In the year 1108 BC, Brutus, a descendant of Aeneas, who was the son of Venus, came to England with his companions after the taking of Troy, and founded the city of Troynovant, which is now called London. After a thousand years, during which the city grew and flourished exceedingly, one Lud became its king. He built walls and towers, and, among other things, the famous gate, whose name still survives in the street called Ludgate. King Lud was succeeded by his brother, Cassivellaunus, in whose time happened the invasion of the Romans under Julius Caesar. Troynovant, or London, then became a Roman city. It was newly fortified by Helena, mother of Constantine the Great. End quote. This is the legend invented or copied by Geoffrey of Monmouth, and continued to be copied and perhaps believed almost to the present day. Having paid this tribute to old tradition, let us relate the true early history of the city, as it can be recovered from such documents as remain, from discoveries made in excavation, from fragments of architecture, and from the lie of the ground. The testimony derived from the lie of the ground is more important than any other for several reasons. First, an historical document may be false or inexact. For instance, the invention of a Brutus, son of Aeneas, is false and absurd on the face of it. Or a document may be wrongly interpreted. Thus a fragment of architecture may, through ignorance, be ascribed to the Roman when it belongs to the Norman period. One needs to be a profound student of architecture before an opinion of value can be pronounced upon the age of any monument, or it may be taken to mean something quite apart from the truth, as if a bastion of the old Roman fort, such as has been discovered on Cornhill, should be taken for part of the Roman wall. But the lie of the ground cannot deceive, and incompetent hands cannot well be misunderstood. If we know the course of streams, the height and position of hills, the run of valleys, the site of marshes, the former extent of forests, the safety of harbours, the existence of fords, we have in our hands a guide-book to history. We can then understand why towns were built in certain positions, why trade sprang up, why invading armies landed at certain places, what course was taken by armies, and why battles have been fought on certain spots. For these things are not the result of chance. They are necessitated by the geographical position of the place, and by the lie of the ground. Why, for instance, is Dover one of the oldest towns in the country? Because it is the nearest landing-ground for the continent, and because its hill forms a natural fortress for protecting that landing-ground. 
why was there a Roman station at Portsmouth? On account of the great and landlocked harbour? Why is Durham an ancient city? Because the steep hill made it almost impregnable. Why is Chester so called? Because it was, from very ancient times, a fort or stationary camp, Latin castra, against the wild Welsh. Let us consider this question as regards London. Look at the map called Roman London, page 15. You will there see, flowing into the River Thames, two little streams, one called Walbrook and the other called the Fleet River. You will see a steep slope or cliff indicated along the riverside. Anciently, before any building stood along the bank, this cliff, about thirty feet high, rose over an immense marsh which covered all the ground on the south, the east, and the west. The cliff receded from the river on the east and on the west at this point. On either side of the Walbrook it rose out of the marsh at the very edge of the river at high tide. There was thus a double hill, one on the east with the Walbrook on one side of it, the Thames on a second side, and a marsh on a third side, and the Fleet River on the west. It was thus bounded on east, south, and west by streams. On the north was a wild moor, hence the name Moorfields, and beyond the moor stretched away northwards a vast forest, afterwards called the Middlesex Forest. This forest covered, indeed, the greater part of the island, save where marshes and stagnant lakes lay extended, the haunt of countless wild birds. You may see portions and fragments of this forest even now. Some of it lies in Kenwood, Hampstead, some in the last bit left of Hainault Forest, some at Epping. The River Thames ran through this marsh. It was then much broader than at present, because there were no banks or quays to keep it within limits. At high tide it overflowed the whole of the marsh, and lay in an immense lake, bounded on the north by this low cliff of clay, and on the south by the rising ground of what we now call the Surrey Hills, which begin between Kennington and Clapham, as is shown by the name of Clapham Rise. In this marsh were a few low islets, always above water save at very high tides. The memory of these islands is preserved in the names ending with E-A or E-Y, as Chelsea, Battersea, Bermondsey, and Westminster Abbey was built upon the Isle of Thorns, or Thorny. The marsh, south of the river, remained a marsh, undrained and neglected for many centuries. Almost within the memory of living men, Southwark contained stagnant ponds, while Bermondsey is still flooded when the tide is higher than is customary. End of Lesson 1 Lesson 2 The Foundation of London, Part 2 On these low hillocks marked on the map, London was first founded. The site had many advantages. It was raised above the malarious marsh, it overlooked the river, which here was at its narrowest, it was protected by two other streams and by the steepness of the cliff, and it was over the little port, formed by the fall of one stream into the river. Here, on the western hill, the Britons formed their first settlement. 
There were, as yet, no ships on the silent river where they fished. There was no ferry, no bridge, no communication with the outer world. The woods provided the first Londoners with game and skins. The river gave them fish. They lived in round huts formed of clay and branches with thatched roofs. If you desire to understand how the Britons fortified themselves, you may see an excellent example not very far from London. It is the place called St. George's Hill, near Weybridge. They wanted a hill, the steeper the side, the better. They made it steeper by entrenching it. They sometimes surrounded it with a high earthwork, and sometimes with a stockade, the great thing being to put the assailing force under the disadvantage of having to climb. The three river sides of the London fort presented a perpendicular cliff surmounted by a stockade. The other side, on which lay the forest, probably had an earthwork also surmounted by a stockade. There were no buildings, and there was no trade. The people belonged to a tribe, and had to go out and fight, when war was carried on with another tribe. The fort was called Llyn Din, the Lake Fort. When the Romans came, they could not pronounce the word Llyn, Llyn in the British way, and called it Lon, hence their word Londinium. Presently adventurous merchants from Gaul pushed across to Dover, and sailed along the coast of Kent, past Sandwich, and through the open channel which then separated the island of Thanet from the mainland, into the broad Thames, and sailing up with the tide, dropped anchor off the fishing villages which lay along the river, and began to trade. What did they offer? What Captain Cook offered the Polynesians, weapons, clothes, adornments. What did they take away? Skins and slaves at first. Skins and slaves and tin and iron, after the country became better known and its resources were understood. The taste for trading, once acquired, rapidly grows. It is a delightful thing to exchange what you do not want for what you do want, and it is so very easy to extend one's wants. So that when the Romans first saw London, it was already a flourishing town, with a great concourse of merchants. How long a period elapsed between the foundation of London and the arrival of the Romans? How long between the foundation and the beginnings of trade? It is quite impossible even to guess. When Caesar landed, Gauls and Belgians were already here before him. As for the Britons themselves, they were Celts, as were the Gauls and the Belgians, but of what is called the Brythonic branch, represented in speech by the Welsh, Breton and Cornish languages. The last is now extinct. There were also lingering among them the surviving families of an earlier and a conquered race, perhaps Basques or Finns. When the country was conquered by the Celts we do not know, nor is there any record at all of the people they found here, unless the caves, full of the bones which they gnawed and cut in two for the marrow, were the homes of these earlier occupants. 
When the Romans came, they found the town prosperous. That is all we know. What the town was like, we do not know. It is, however, probable that the requirements of trade had already necessitated some form of embankment and some kind of key. Also, if trade were of long standing, some improvement in the huts, the manner of living, the wants, and the dress of the people would certainly have been introduced. Such was the beginning of London. Let us repeat. It was a small fortress defended on three sides by earthworks, by stockades, by a cliff or steeply sloping bank, and by streams. On the fourth side by an earthwork, stockade, and trench. The ground was slightly irregular, rising from thirty to sixty feet. An open moor full of quagmires and ponds also protected it on the north. On the east, on the other side of the stream, rose another low hill. The extent of this British fort of Llyn Din may be easily estimated. The distance from Walbrook to the fleet is very nearly nine hundred yards. Supposing the fort was five hundred yards in depth from south to north, we have an area of four hundred and fifty thousand square yards, i.e. about a hundred acres was occupied by the first London, the fortress on the lake. What this town was like in its later days when the Romans found it, what buildings stood upon it, how the people lived, we know very little indeed. They went out to fight, we know so much. And if you visit Hampstead Heath, you may look at a barrow on the top of a hill, which probably contains the bones of those citizens of London who fell in the victory which they achieved over the citizens of Verulam, when they fought it out in the valley below that hill. End of Lesson 2 Recording by Ruth Golding